Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark with Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry. And this is Stuff You Should Know. Sportsy edition. Sportsy. I think really we should err on just the side of history. Well, I even put a note in here. If you don't like sports, listen to this one anyway. Yeah. Because this is about much more than baseball. Yeah. This is about uh, history and about... Overcoming adversity? Yeah, like it's a very interesting story because... And we'll get into this, but I think people <laughs> yeah, we better. tend to think of the Negro Leagues, and that's what this is about, the the baseball Negro Leagues, mm-hmm. which is what they were called. Yep. We don't use that word anymore. No. But you called this that because that's what it was. All right. Um, you tend to think of it in a certain way, which is only, yeah, well, baseball was segregated and they couldn't play in the white leagues, and that's awful, which it is and was. But there's another side to it, too. Yeah, yeah, this is a good point. Where Chuck. these men and these business owners were empowered. And uh, and the players. And the, yeah, and, and it's, yeah, that's just a tease. I just wanted to whet their appetite. Oh, you for did. For people who hate you sports. You my appetite. I'm sitting here like, <laughs> keep going. Yeah. So I think we should start with a little bit of history, right? So just a brief primer of American history. Okay. We'll start with slavery. It's a good place to start. The transatlantic slave trade. Yeah. Uh, built this country. Yep. And frankly, I'm just going to come out and say it. I think some of the major issues that the United States faces today comes from a uh, lack of accountability for slavery. Um, really uh, is contributing to a lot of the inequality and a lot of the strife that we still face today and have faced over the decades. Yeah. So you've got slavery and then you had the end of slavery. You had the Emancipation Proclamation, which a lot of people say, oh, well, that was great. Abraham Lincoln spoke some magic words and freed the slaves and everything was great. Yeah, it was just perfectly uh, equal after that, right? No. No. So it took the the Union to win the Civil War um, to begin to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation in the South and yeah. in Texas. Apparently, Texas were, were among the last holdouts. And there was slavery going on in Texas like years after the Civil War was over. Oh, yeah? Yeah. They were just like, of course, not going to pay attention to that. Sure. So um, the Civil War was fought. The the part of the, the Union victory of the Civil War was coming into the South and saying, like, all you Confederates, you guys are out of power. And as a matter of fact, this power vacuum is perfectly willing to be filled by um, freed blacks. Yeah. Uh, so go ahead. Run for office. Um, become judges, like become part of the, the reconstruction power. Um, and that lasted for a very, very short time. The, the yeah. white Southern former power base who were leading the Confederacy and even ones who weren't necessarily part of like the actual Confederate government or even the Confederate army, yeah. but just the people like in your town who used to own the sawmill or whatever. Right. That guy came back in power within a couple of years and the white Southerners who'd been supplanted when they came back into power, they remembered the black people who had tried to take their positions. Right. And so it got ugly. Yeah. And so rather than having actual legal slavery, it came in other different horrible pernicious forms, which came to be called post-reconstruction, the Jim Crow South. Yeah. And boy, we need to do one. Uh, I've had it on my list for a while mm-hmm. on Jim Crow, period. Yeah. Um, 
how about this? First of all, where'd you get this other good, really good article? It's on um, the Major League Baseball website. Was it? Yeah. Um, in the prehistory section of that one, and this is just to show you the tone of things. Uh, in 1857, there was a Supreme Court Chief Justice. Yeah. Uh, Roger Tanney, who, um, it's funny that the way this writer put it, he said he's campaigning hard for a spot in the American Scum Hall of Fame. <laughs> like that. That's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, in his official writing, this is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court said, uh, Negroes were so far inferior to whites, uh, that they had no rights, which a white man was bound to respect. And this is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Yeah. I think I need to say that like four more times. Yeah. Before it sinks in. That was two or three. This is what was going on, despite the Emancipation Proclamation, despite the Fourteenth Amendment. Well, that was actually before it. That was before. That was during the slave, the time of slavery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. just to excuse that guy. But after, <laughs> after that, despite the amendments to the Constitution, despite all yeah. of that, it's it took the till the nineteen sixties to even begin the slightest bit of real progress. Yeah, that's true. Not quite true, because the history is littered with people who've made advancements. They, they and did, I don't want to knock that. But uh, in a systemic manner, yeah, totally. it, you're, you're right. It wasn't until the 60s. But part of the problem, too, was, and this is a valid point, uh, other courts had said, like those is Justice Henry Billings Brown, said legislation is powerless to eradicate racial uh, instincts or to abolish distinctions based upon physical differences. Uh, basically what he's saying is like, we can create laws, mm-hmm. but you're not going to change public's mind right. by creating laws. And you can't like abolish pre- prejudice. Right. And so if white people think that black people are inferior to them, who are we, the government, to say otherwise? Yeah, and- or to try maybe and legislate our way out of it even. Right. So in, uh, I think, 1896, there was a court case called Plessy versus Ferguson. Yeah. And in Plessy versus Ferguson, the Supreme Court upheld and legitimized and actually made um, real the segregation that had already been going on right. um, ever since uh, Reconstruction or ever since the end of Reconstruction, the beginning of Jim Crow laws, right? right? So the the United States was officially segregated in 1896, but baseball had actually segregated years before that, but not as far back as people think. And a lot of people think that baseball had always been segregated up until 1946. Yeah, I when think Jackie he, Robinson broke the color barrier. I think 99% of people think that Jackie Robinson was the first black American to play pro yeah. baseball. Including me until yesterday when we started really? researching this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. did you know this already? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big baseball fan and a bit of a student of its history, so I knew. Oh, okay. So tell them, Chuck. Well, uh, who the guys were specifically? Well, yeah. So in 1867, I think two years after the Civil War, there was already baseball. Remember, Abner Doubleday created baseball in what 1839? Oh, in like 1300. And that's but that's <laughs> a legitimate story, right? That's not uh, yeah. Or, like he really did. He was the inventor of yeah, baseball, yeah, and it sure. did happen in Cooperstown, New York, and all that, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know, but was he in Cooperstown? I believe so. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So uh, within. Uh, just a couple of decades, there was the National Association of Baseball Players. They were the league, right? Yeah, I mean, not within a couple of decades, a couple of years. Oh, really? Yeah, like literally two years after the end of the Civil War, there was a, a, a African American team called—I uh, actually don't know what their name was—but they were out of Philadelphia, 
and they said, we want to join your league, which was the National Association of Baseball Players mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. And they were rejected as a team, of course, at the time. And, uh, but that didn't mean that there were not players individually. Right. Uh, That's a huge caveat. Yeah, it was a little bit later. In 1886, finally, and not for too long, we had two brothers, uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker mm-hmm. and Welday Walker. Yeah. And uh, Moses- Who do they play for? The Toledo Blue Stockings. That's right, baby. <laughs> My hometown integrated baseball team in That's the right. 1880s. You were totally right. Uh, Moses was, uh, he was older. He played 42 games for the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they only came along and played in six games. Moses hit 263 that season. Uh, and they were the son of a physician. Oh, yeah. Like the first, uh, black physician in Toledo. Nice. And, um, went to college, uh, played baseball at Oberlin in Michigan. Yeah. So, <laughs> I know the Wolverines. I didn't know Oberlin even had sports. Well, this is the 19th century. I think they phased them out. <laughs> phased them out in favor of uh, debate, acoustic guitars and debate. <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of people that went to Oberlin, weirdly. Really? Well, my good friend Robert Shahadi from Boston that you met that uh-huh. came to our show. Okay. Uh, Lucy Wainwright uh-huh. went to Oberlin. Didn't know that. Uh, David Reese. Really? Went to Oberlin. Okay. And I feel like a couple of other people. Yeah. It's got a nice reputation. Yeah. Great name, too. Oberlin? Oberlin. It sounds Ivy League. Yeah. Oberlin, the sound of quality. <laughs> Oberlin sounds Ivy League-ish. <laughs> right. That's on their t-shirts. Uh, although, uh, we do need to give a shout out. There was one guy in 1879, William Edward White, who substituted and played one game. Oh, yeah? Who was officially, and this is a little murky history-wise, because we don't know much about him or how it happened, Mm -hmm. but supposedly he played one game uh, as a professional baseball player as a black man. Is that right? Yeah. And this is when? 1879. Okay. So the Walker brothers are playing for Toledo in 1886, right? Correct. And actually, this article on How Stuff Works Gets It Wrong says that um, they just played for the team for one year before the team went under. Um, That's not the case, as a matter of fact. The Moses Walker, they may have only played together on the team for that one year. Um, but Moses Walker had, had played for years before them. Yeah. And actually, Moses Walker, and um, there were several other players at the time. In 1886 and 87, there were at least four black players in the minors. But the Walker brothers were playing for Toledo, which was a major league team, right? Correct. Um, but the presence of Moses Walker actually brought to the fore this kind of simmering resentment um, and kind of a, the, the big elephant in the room, uh, there's a black guy on your team. Right. What are you guys doing? And so Toledo actually went to go play the White Sox in Chicago. And the White Sox had this, like, their great player of, of that season, I think, in uh, 1884. Who was it? Cap Anson. Great nicknames back then. So Cap Anson said... He said some horrible things and ultimately was like, I'm not playing if that man's on the field. Yeah. And um, Moses Walker was actually injured and still was like, oh, well, I'm definitely going on the field today anyway. Yeah. So he dressed out and um, I'm not sure if he actually played in the game, but he was like part of the team. And Cap Anson was not indulged. Toledo was like, we're not taking our guy out. He's one of our players. So Cap Anson can go suck an egg. And Cap Anson went and sucked an egg. He was really mad. But, um, the, the, the issue that day, that dispute at Comiskey Field, um, brought to the fore the, the, 
the concept of integration and ultimately segregation yeah. among major league baseball teams and it actually increased the pressure among owners and managers to to get rid of the black players not just in the majors but in the minors yeah there was another player too i read another story about um and we'll we'll get to Roy Campanella he was a he was better than Jackie Robinson at the time uh a catcher who was just amazing hall of famer and he had a, a there was a white pitcher it was like, you know, he was a great catcher, but I didn't want to play with him. So I would, when I pitched to him, I would just ignore his signs and threw whatever I want. Mm-hmm. Like to his own detriment and to the team's detriment, he, uh, he just wouldn't take the signs. What a putz. I know. Career sabotage, essentially. Yeah. I don't think he lasted long either. And Campanella's in the Hall of Fame, so he can <laughs> Right. The other guy, who knows? Uh, I want to give uh, these names all out, though. The four uh, black men in the minors in 1866, besides Moses Walker, uh, we had Bud Fowler, Frank Grant, and George Stovey. And as far as I'm concerned, all these dudes are American heroes. So, um, all of a sudden, they succumbed to pressure in 1890 after hate mail and death threats to the Coaches and managers and mm-hmm. umpires and, uh, you know, basically everybody, the players themselves. And they said, you know what? We're going to shut it down. As officially in 1890, we can no longer have any, uh, black men in our league. So here's the thing. They never officially did that. They had the minor league ban black players. Yeah. And the way into the major sure. leagues was through the minors. Well, and it was never on the rule books either. Right. It was, it was an unofficial, uh-huh. non-gentleman's agreement. Right. Because Which eventually, actually, when it was broken, it wasn't like a rule was broken. Right, right. It was just an unwritten rule. Right, exactly. Which paved the way for Branch Rickey to to break that unbroken rule without actually breaking a rule. Yes. Yeah. Good point, Chuck. You want to take a break? Uh, yeah, let's do it. Learning stuff with Joshua and Charles. Stuff you All right, man. So, 1890, it's now, there are, there are no black players. Resegregated. In Major League Baseball or Minor League Baseball in Correct. America, right? That's right. That actually paved the way for one of the great unsung chapters in baseball history, which was the creation of the Negro Leagues. Yeah, and in a true show of American spirit and uh, determination and just love of the game, mm-hmm. uh, these uh, these men got together. They formed their own teams, mm-hmm. and they did what's called barnstorming. Yeah, which is pretty awesome. And they would load up in cars or on a bus, and they would go from town to town mm-hmm. and take their show on the road, and they would get a game up wherever they could and wherever people would pay a couple of pennies. To come watch a baseball game, mm-hmm. um, they were playing white players in these barnstorming games. Yeah. Or black players or Latino players. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because that's a definite overlooked segment of the early baseball history are Latino players. Oh, totally. And one of the cool things about the Negro Leagues is they were integrated. They had, yeah. they had Latino teams like the Cuban, uh, Kings out of New York, I believe. Yep. And one white guy. All right. So barnstorming's going on. Uh, like I said, they would roll into town. They would play whatever teams they could play. And, uh, it started to gain some momentum. Like people started to follow these players. Yeah. And they actually got fans. And there was a former player named, uh, 
Andrew Rube Foster, who owned one of those teams, and he said, you know what? Uh, I think we need our own league. Yeah. They won't let us in their league. Let's start our own. Because um, besides the fact that it, people want it, there's money to be made here. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, so this barnstorming thing, I want to talk a little more about that, right? Yeah. Um, one of the reasons barnstorming came about was to make ends meet, but it was also because these teams had to figure out a way to put on games as cheaply as possible. Yeah. All of the stadiums at the time were owned by whites, and the whites apparently were not very friendly to the idea of black pl- black teams playing in their their fields. So if it were just like uh, black teams playing one another, the white owners of the fields would just charge an exorbitant amount. So right. these guys were going basically anywhere they could find a place that would stand still long enough for them to play a baseball game on. Yeah. That's what they would play. And they played like three games a day. Oh, yeah. Every day. Yeah. And they all traveled together and like um, hung out with one another and spent a, a lot of time together. So like the, the, the Negro Leagues came out of this um, – kind of camaraderie of barnstorming together. Yeah. Which is pretty awesome. Yeah, it's very cool. So yeah, this guy Rube Foster, he owned the um Chicago American Giants. And confusingly, there's also another Negro team called the Chicago Giants. And the St. Louis Giants. Yeah. Yeah, and but it could be like St. Louis Giants. versus Chicago. <laughs> yeah. But if it was Chicago versus Chicago, well which one? The Giants. Well which one? The American Giants. Okay, now I understand. <laughs> Not just the Giants. But Rube Foster was like this uh, this booster of boundless enthusiasm. This guy literally put together the first real Negro League. Yeah. And when he was basically removed from it, the whole the whole thing fell apart. That's how how much of a driver this guy was. Yeah, he's in the Hall of Fame too. Yeah, he was a catcher, I think. Uh, oh, I don't even think he was in as a player, but he he was. Oh, really? Form- yeah, I think just for his achievement. I gotcha. Um, although it may have been both, I don't know. But uh, in 1920, he said, all right, here's what we'll do. Let me get these uh, seven team owners uh, of the Midwestern League that are doing these, you know, barnstorming uh, traveling shows, basically. Mm-hmm. Let's get together in Kansas City, seven all-black teams. Uh, in addition to those two Chicago Giants, we have the Cuban Stars, the Dayton Marcos, the Indianapolis ABCs, and the very famous Kansas City Monarchs yeah. and St. Louis Giants. Uh, all, and this is the really like great thing about the story. Mm. All of these teams, except for the monarchs, were black-owned teams. Right. So, so not only do you have black uh, players' careers developing, yeah, you have like black enterprise developing in a in a time when there were very few avenues of opportunity for black people to advance in business. Yeah, and in 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 a sense where they own the business. This is a really good way to do it. Yeah, and not only that, like the the Major League Baseball site points out, like this was like it should be embraced in some ways because this at a time was the only one of the only ways that minorities could f- fully like excel to their fullest potential. Right. And you know? yeah, and that was a a point of that article that I thought was pretty cool is that one of the one of the things they lamented about the segregation of baseball during this time. Um, is that we'll never know how Babe Ruth would have stood up against Satchel Paige pitching to him because they never got to play each other. So the truly great players are truly great at during this time yeah. within their own skin color. Yeah. You know, you can't say they were the greatest in baseball because they were two legitimate 
um, parallel leagues going on at the time. And yeah, they played each other sometimes, but if you wanted to sit down and put stats against stats, right. you'd be very hard pressed to do that. Right. Uh, sure. All, Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, uh, Christy Matheson, like, we know they were good. Like, we're not knocking their talent, but mm-hmm. who knows what it would have been like in a truly integrated league. Yeah, and actually, it's funny you bring up Ty Cobb, because I was like, oh, yeah, Ty Cobb was a huge racist. I wonder what he thought about the Negro <laughs> Leagues. And I looked it up, and I found an article from a guy who argues that Ty Cobb was not the um, the horrible racist that he's made out to be these days. Written by Jimmy Cobb. There, He found, <laughs> well, he, he actually did cite his son, and I think his son's name might be Jim. Really? Jimmy. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, but... The, the guy found an article from maybe the 50s or something, 1952, where Ty Cobb is quoted at length uh, coming out in favor of um, integration in oh, really? baseball. Yeah. Huh. Saying, like, of course these guys should play as long as, you know, they conduct themselves like uh, professional baseball players. Like, why would they not be able to play? I'm totally in favor of it. Interesting. It's like, did Ty Cobb say this? I think that bears more research. Yeah. You know? Because he was supposedly very racist. Yeah, that's not what this guy says. All right, well, I'm going to look into that. That's not what his son says. <laughs> uh, I'm not doubting you, of course. I just want to... Sure, no, I'm with you. I understand. Uh, so we talked about the integration of the Negro Leagues, which is awesome. Uh, pretty soon, other leagues formed, not just teams. Yeah. Uh, there was one right here in the South, the Negro Southern League, uh, with teams from uh, right here in Atlanta. Dude, do you know... The Atlanta team played directly across oh, yeah. the street. Ponce de Leon Park. Yeah, where there's now a Staples and a Home Depot and a PetSmart. And a Whole Foods. Yeah. How, like, funny is that? Yeah. Um, if you walk into Whole Foods and listen, you can hear the ghost of a bat cracking <laughs> on a ball. Yeah, this I don't think this was the first team in Atlanta that played in the uh, Negro Southern League because they folded that same year. Mm-hmm. But the Atlanta Black Crackers, uh, we also had the Atlanta Crackers, which was the white team. Um, we had the Atlanta Black Crackers and... It sounds funny that we say Ponce de Leon, uh, not Ponce de Leon, but that's how we say it here. Hmm. It's the street that fronts yeah. our office building. Ponce de Leon himself would have punched you in the stomach <laughs> if he heard you say his name like that, though. Uh, but that's the street in Atlanta that fronts our office. And if you go and look on the Internet, you can see these awesome pictures of this cool little baseball stadium mm-hmm. right there, hundreds of feet from where we sit. Yeah. Really neat. Yeah. Um. And now you have Whole Foods. <laughs> now you, you just have to listen close. Go pay $7 for artisan mayonnaise. Yeah. If you're lucky, <laughs> $7. Oh, that's just for the, uh, the, just for one smear. Yeah, just one smear. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear Whole Foods got caught, like, uh, with uncalibrated, um, scales for their hot bar stuff? Like, it's not already expensive enough. Right. Yeah. That's Isn't that crazy. Awful? I expect a lot more from them. Yeah. You know, never get anything with bones at one of those. Oh, never. Or liquid. What a waste. Yeah. You throw half of that chicken leg away. Yeah. You paid for it. Sure. Or just, you know, grind that chicken bone up and eat it and get your money's worth. Yeah, like peel it off with your teeth, spit the meat into your <laughs> into your little basket and throw the bone back into the hot bar. Yeah. Oh, I didn't think about that. Sure. That's a great idea. And then you can say, I'm no chump. Yeah. I'm just go around screaming out and not paying for that bone. <laughs> um, all right. So where are we? We're the, the Negro Southern League folded. The Eastern Colored League opened in 1923. Mm-hmm. And then finally in 1928, the American Negro League formed. And that was, uh, that was when things like 
they they called eventually the American Negro League and the American I'm sorry the National Negro League mm-hmm. the majors of the Negro Leagues. Right. Like that was where the the creme de la creme right. played. And um the the everything's going pretty smoothly except two things happen, right? Um there's even like a Negro League World Series. Yeah. There's a best of 9. The Kansas City oh, Monarchs, was it really? yeah, the Kansas oh, City Monarchs narrowly beat uh the Hilldale team. They're from Darby, Pennsylvania, which I guess is near Philadelphia, um, in the first one in 1924. So there's like, there's a, there's, these leagues have established themselves. By 19, 1924, they have their own World Series going, right? Yeah. Um, but just within a few years, there are a couple of hits to the league that ultimately led to the, the Negro majors disbanding. Um, one is that, uh, Rube Foster suffered, uh, gas poisoning. In a uh, hotel room. Yeah, in a hotel room in Indianapolis. He was found unconscious. Yeah. And there's some theory that, um, like everyone believed in ghosts and spirits and mediums in the 19th century because they were all being poisoned by the natural gas that was like leaking into their kitchens and homes all the time. Right. Well, this guy had like an acute poisoning. Yeah. And was found unconscious. And after that, uh, when he regained consciousness and was nursed back to health, he lost his mind. And uh, he just kept getting worse and worse. And by 1925, I think this happened in 1924, 1925, he was institutionalized. Yeah. And by 1930, he died of a heart attack at age 51. Yeah. Um, and again, his guidance was so integral uh, in this first incarnation of the Negro Leagues that, you know, when he uh, was institutionalized, obviously they weren't like, well, what does the league do next? Yeah. He was in an institution, um, and the league started to falter and fall apart. And eventually that, coupled with the Depression, the onset of the Depression, yeah. really kind of led to the unraveling of the first Negro League. Yeah, and this uh, the Major League Baseball site, um, you know, these were, they profited on certain days of the week. Uh, Sundays yeah. were big days because they were played double headers. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, um, black Americans didn't have a lot of expendable money to throw at going to baseball games. Sure. Even though they're, you know, pretty cheap. That was commiserate with what people made at the time. Unless you were one of the Walker brothers whose dad was a physician. Yeah, they probably had a little money. Sure. Um, but they were playing, so I'm sure their parents got in for free. <laughs> probably so. So it's all just a moot point. I wonder if they did get free family tickets back then. I would hope so. I That's got to so, be right? as old as tickets, right? Probably. we we got to do an episode on tickets. Guest list. <laughs> uh, so they were making a little money on Sundays. They weren't hugely profitable overall, even though they were known as somewhat successful. Like, no, uh, no, a lot of these guys were still barnstorming on their off days. Yeah, and these are the players, you know, trying to make ends meet. Like mm-hmm. the owners themselves were struggling uh, here and there. Um, white people came to see games sometimes, um, especially when they were exhibition games against white teams, right? Because they loved to go out there and see the see something they had never seen before. Yeah. Which, uh, many times was the black team mopping the floor with the white team. Yeah. Um, although, I, it, it seemed pretty evenly matched. Like, from what I gathered, it wasn't like lopsided one way or the other. Yeah. Like, they were good competitive games. Yeah. There are plenty of, um, white players who are better than the black players, and there are plenty of black players who are better than, uh, white players. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I would say evenly matched is a good way to put it. So if you had an integrated league, you would get the best of both. Right. Which is eventually what we got. Plus, also in some of these cities, Chuck, these, they're, they were 
not just baseball was segregated, but just within the city, you had a white team and you had a black team. Right. And that's that's uh, evidenced in the names of some of the black teams, like the Black Crackers right. or the Black Yankees. Yeah, yeah. Um, there were the Yankees and then there were the Crackers, right? right? So if you were a white player or a white person, you're probably a fan of the white team and you weren't going and watching the black teams play. Right. Um, so they list out four things here on the site. They said the two leagues... Uh, the, the American and National, uh, Negro Leagues were northern and uh, basically city dwelling teams. Right. Couple that with, um, there weren't a lot of black people living in northern cities at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the south was, you know, was way more, uh, well, I want to say integrated, but it wasn't integrated. Uh, way no, more black people was, living yeah, in the south at the time. Yeah, which is, I wonder why the southern Negro League didn't take off like a rocket then. Yeah, I mean, probably for the other reasons, like you couldn't afford to go mm-hmm. to the games and gotcha. all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, black people that were in the North, uh, didn't have a whole lot of money. And so basically all that adds up to not a lot of audience buying tickets. And the only way to keep a league afloat is to sell tickets and to sell concessions. Right. Same as it is today. Yeah. So all those things couple with, uh, Rube Foster. And uh, the, the Depression. Their, their greatest champion and probably sharpest mind. Uh, sadly, succumbing to mental illness, mm-hmm. and then the depression, and that was the end of the beginning of the Negro Leagues, right? Yeah, that was the end of the first one. Yes, and there were more to come, and we'll talk about it right after this. Burning stuff with Joshua and Charles, stuff you All right, so uh, it didn't take long. Uh, the old saying, you can't keep a good man down. People wanted to play baseball. They were good at it. Um, they thought there was more money to be made in leagues. And so uh, what happens is these numbers guys yeah. get involved. Yeah. And uh, a numbers man is... The numbers game was basically like a, an illegal, unsanctioned street lottery. Right. So numbers guys had a lot of money. And some of them said, you know what? Let's put money into starting baseball teams and leagues. Yeah. And one guy in particular in Pittsburgh, uh, Gus Greenley. Great name. Uh, he was a bar owner in Pittsburgh. He bought the Pittsburgh Crawfords in 1931. He said, well, I've got a team, but I don't have a league. So two years later, he formed the second Negro National League. And uh, other numbers guys bought in, and all of a sudden they had another league going. Yeah. Um, and this basically kicked off what's known as the golden age of the Negro Leagues. Yeah. Um, starting about 1931, 32, 33, when, when these other teams came about. And um, Greenlee's team uh, himself, was it his? No, I'm sorry. It would have been right across the uh, river, the Homestead Grays. Yeah, they eventually migrated back to Pittsburgh. Did they? Over to Pittsburgh, yeah. So they were the same team that went from one town to another, or they weren't rivals? No, I think there was still the other Pittsburgh team, but from what I understand, the Homestead Grays eventually became part of Pittsburgh. Okay. Or maybe there was another team, I'm not sure. But I do know they eventually went to Pittsburgh. Because you know Homestead, we've been there, we did a show there. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, and I was like, are we going to the right place <laughs> right. when the car was taking me? <laughs> so Homestead used to have not just a team. They used to have the best Negro League team 
possibly ever. Oh yeah, wait, easy. For uh nine consecutive years they won the pennant. Right? Yeah, nine years in a row. Josh Gibson, cool Papa Bell, and Buck Leonard. Some but, of their stars. Yeah, just some of them. In nineteen thirty five they had no less than five future Hall of Famers on on the team. Five. That's amazing. Point to a team that has five future Hall of Famers on it now. Or ever did. Uh well so, some of the Yankees teams did over the years, but like I don't think anything right now. Oh yeah? Now, like even the best team right now doesn't have five future Hall of Famers. Sure. Certainly not the Braves. I don't, no, we don't have one. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I could see Freddie Freeman hitting the, the Hall of Fame one day. Mm-mm. Oh, really? Uh, I, don't know. I haven't been watching the last couple seasons. Yeah, I mean, he's our best player, but... Come best, on, Freddie. The best player on the worst team in baseball? <laughs> right. Not very good. Casey at the bat. Uh, <laughs> all right, so we did mention that... um there were exhibition games going on, and things really picked up with the exhibition games now because they were a little well-funded, and this is when um, white players would come and see the teams playing. I mean, it, it was basically more popular than ever uh, in both communities. Yes, and um, we said that they had the um, the Negro League World Series going on, right? Yeah. Um, they, there was actually another game that came out of this. I think it was... Um, it might have been Gus Greenlee. I think it was. Who came up with it. It was the East versus West All-Stars game. Yeah. And that became bigger than the World Series in whatever it was in the Negro League. Yeah, it was huge. Yeah. So um, that became kind of like the de facto big game of the year rather than the World Series for yeah. them. Um, and it, they played it every year, I think, in Comiskey Field. Oh, really? Yeah, in Chicago. Because, you know, East meets West in Chicago. That's right. That's what it says on the T-shirts, at least. Uh, so players are starting to make some, like the top players are starting to make some pretty good money mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, you can't go any further without talking about, uh, Satchel Page, Leroy Satchel Page. Dude. He was, um, a pitcher. Very interesting dude. Maybe the greatest pitcher of all time in the sport of baseball. Maybe. He, he was eccentric. He was an entertainer. Yeah. Uh, he was like the Usain Bolt of his day. <laughs> People loved him. Oh, okay. Except he didn't like to run. That <laughs> That's would make true. him a little different. He even said he didn't like to run. Yeah. What was his quote? He said that um, training for me is rising gently from the bench. Back onto the bench. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so he had, have you ever seen video or I guess, you know, film of him pitching? Yeah, with those old timey baggy baseball pants and all yeah, that. Yeah, that was the, the style. But his, um, he had a weird wind up. He had this sort of double windmill that he would do with his pitching mm-hmm. arm. And then, um, when he was younger, he had a great fastball and he had, he was noted for his control, like Greg Maddox, like in his pinpoint control. Yeah. Like supposedly he could just put a baseball within a half an inch of where he wanted it to be, which is big, big deal for a pitcher. Sure. Um, as he lost his fastball over the years, he learned basically every pitch under the sun. Like he pitched until he was 59 years old. Yeah. <laughs> He first he first signed in the uh, majors, white majors, uh, at forty two. Yeah, forty two rook, forty two year old rookie. Mm-hmm. He was the he's the oldest rookie ever in the in major league baseball, and I think the oldest pitcher ever. Oh as yeah, well yeah yeah. Um, he was even older than Gaylord Perry. How old was he? Nah, he was in his forties. Oh, was he? Like Nolan Ryan, Gaylord Perry, Gaylord, a few pitchers. Nolan that, Ryan made it to fifty. No, not fifty, but he came close. 
like pitchers notably have been a little older, which is crazy because like their arms, yeah. yeah, but they're not, you know, they're not like uh, running around and batting like other players. Yeah, but you're right, like Freddie Freeman, like the stress on the <laughs> the stress on the arm is amazing. So uh, one thing uh, that that uh, was problematic or is problematic when you're going back and looking at the Negro leagues is that um, a lot of teams were allowed to, depending on the league, were allowed to set their own schedules. Yeah, um, stats weren't kept quite as um, uh, well as they were in uh, the white leagues. Yeah, we don't know Satchel Paige's real lifetime stats. No, but in full, there are some estimates. Yeah, and they are high. Oh yeah. So one that I saw was that Satchel Paige had. I think it was in this um, this article on MLB.com, which eventually we'll say the author's name, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, they said that he had 300 career shutouts. 300 career shutouts. And this guy says, in italics, not wins. Yeah. Shutouts, right? Yeah. If you don't know baseball, shutout means you have pitched a game where no one scored a run. Right. And back then, there were probably complete game shutouts, meaning he never came out and was relieved by another pitcher. Right. He would have pitched like all nine innings. Back in the, in the day, they used to do that way more than they do now. Okay. So he had 300 career shutouts. 1,500 wins is the estimate that it, that's on MLB.com. Yeah, to put that into perspective, for non-baseball fans again, if you have 300 wins... Wins, not shutouts, wins. Then you're a Hall of Famer. Yeah. And in fact, they don't think there will ever be another 300-game winner again because of there are more pitchers in the rotation. Now they usually have five guys mm-hmm. instead of four. Mm-hmm. They don't pitch as deep into games. They rest them a lot more, so... It's just, we may not ever see that happen again. Right. Just because of the way it's built. It, to also put it in perspective, Cy Young is, um, r- regarded as one of the best pitchers ever in, in Major League sure. Baseball. They named the top award after him. Exactly. He had 76 shutouts. Which is amazing. He had the most wins ever still in Major League Baseball, uh, at 5'11. So Satchel Page had conceivably three times more wins. Yeah. Than the 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 highest win count ever in Major League, Baseball. and that's counting his entire career, I yeah. assume. Yeah. Which again was very very long. Sure, it was a very long career, but that just makes it all the more amazing, especially as he gets older. Yeah, like let let's say that people don't say uh, don't count the Negro leagues as being in the top league at the time. Like cut it in half, and he's still right. way ahead of everybody else. Yeah. If you subtract 50% of everything he did. And the fact that he sat in a rocking chair in the dugout and (laughs) had like a huge personality, it's just awesome. Yeah, so he learned uh, all sorts of pitches. By the end of his career, he was pitching uh, knuckleballs, and he he was famous for the the hesitation pitch, which he invented, which was uh, when he got to the white major leagues, they were like, that's illegal. (laughs) You can't do that. It's called a balk. Yeah. And uh, he was like, all right, well. well." No, he's like, no, it's called a hesitation (laughs) pitch. Don't you know? It was very sneaky. Um, you know, it's like you, you act like you're pitching, then you stop. Mm-hmm. And because his theory, he was like, you know, I got guys up there that are starting to swing because I'm so fast. Mm-hmm. Like when they see me winding up, they're starting to swing. Yeah. So if I just put a little slight pause there, then they're swinging and then the ball comes. Mm-hmm. So it was a very, very tricky little pitch. Um, and he was making between 30 and 40 grand a year in the Negro. And this is also with, uh, Appearances and stuff like that. Right. But in the Negro Leagues, which is about half a million dollars today. Yeah. Amazing amount of money at the time. Mm-hmm. You know? 
And those, those appearances, um, uh, uh, if you were a team owner that had Satchel Page on your team, uh, you might let him go make some scratch and probably take a cut yourself by lending him to another team whose attendance was struggling. Yeah. And all you had to do was advertise for a week that Satchel Page was going to be pitching one day and you would sell out. So he would help other Negro League teams that were, oh, um, right. That, that were struggling. Yeah. Could to be a draw. Yeah. Uh, and here's one little cool thing about our own Atlanta Braves. In, uh, 1968, Satchel Page was, uh, lacking one more season to get his Major League Baseball pension and, uh, was out of the league and retired. And the Atlanta Braves signed him as a player coach, uh, like Terry Pendleton. Yeah. <laughs> he was never a player coach, was he? No, but he was a player and then a coach. Oh, oh, yeah. Pete Rose was a player coach. Was he really? Like he managed the Reds and played for them. I didn't know that. And bet on them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they signed him to a one-year deal so he could get his Major League Baseball pension. That is awesome. Uh, which is really cool. Class what what year was that? 1968. That's really cool. Yeah. Go Braves. So you, if you see a picture, when I saw a picture of him in the Braves uniform, I was like, wait a minute. He never played for the Braves. And he really didn't. It was it was sort of, you know, just a little uh, sneaky way to get him in there. That's cool. Which is great. Um, all right, so Satchel Page is killing it. Other players are killing it. It would not be long before somebody in the white leagues, somebody said, the talent is too good. Somebody has to be the first to make this move and break the color barrier. Yeah, right. You know, that was the thing like this. The the Negro Leagues were ultimately, as we'll find out, victims of their own success. The the players that they supported and, and brought into the game were of obvious major league caliber. Oh, yeah. In any major league. They were the best in the world. They were just playing on segregated teams. And so finally, a, a, a group of people, but especially it usually comes in the form of one guy named um, Branch Rickey. Yeah. Did Tom Hanks play him? No. Harrison Ford? No. Maybe. No. Well, I didn't see the most recent Jackie yeah, Robinson what, movie. That's what I'm Was Harrison Ford? Maybe. I've seen him portrayed in other movies. I can't tell if it was him or not because the actor didn't have a diamond studded earring in, but Harrison <laughs> Ford could have taken it out for the role. Uh, this guy named Branch Rickey... Was he an executive or a manager for the Dodgers? He was, uh, he was with, uh, he was an executive for okay. the Dodgers. And he said, and this was when they were in Brooklyn, right? Yeah. He said, this is ridiculous. There, that we need to break this color barrier. There's plenty of great players out there that I want to sign. Mm-hmm. I'm going to break this unspoken rule. And he looked around to find a player who was not only good, but yeah. who he felt could withstand this horrendous. Yeah reception that whoever the first black player would be would definitely receive For and sure. who did receive and he found it in the in the person of Jackie Robinson yeah that's a that's a huge point um cuz like i said Jack, Roy Campanella was probably a better player at the time mm. than Jackie Robinson but if you see the Jackie Robinson story uh i didn't see the recent one like i said but i just know a lot about his story he was the right guy he had the temperament he had the leadership mm-hmm. Um, Roy Campanella would take your head off. Well, he, yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> he was a tough guy. Yeah. Uh, but Jackie Robinson was, was the man in every way. And we should also shout out to, uh, the, the road being paved, uh, by people like Joe Lewis and Jesse Owens before sure. Jackie Robinson. Yeah. As far as just white America, 
accepting mainstream black athletes into yeah, their lives. Yeah, and I don't know if it was on this or on there's a site called negroleaguebaseball.com um that has a really good article called uh, Negro League Baseball 101 or something like that. It's, yeah. just, it's just the basics. There's a definite story to the whole thing, right? Yeah. Um but they point out that um probably more than anything that helped break the color barrier was um blacks serving in World War 2. Oh yeah. Serving alongside um, white soldiers and and stories coming back from the fronts of like, hey, these guys are killing Germans just as fast as any yeah. any white guy. Yeah. Um. And <laughs> <laughs> at the time, America was like, well, we love that yeah, about people. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, when they returned, um, the black soldiers came home to a, a different America that they helped change by fighting in World War II. That's pretty cool. And, I mean, the, the timing of this apparently is not coincidental that Jackie Robinson was signed in 1946, a yeah. year after World War II ended. For sure. Yeah. Uh, so Branch Rickey was, um, he was a very puritanical guy. He would often lecture players on sex and drinking and stuff. And uh, he was, he wasn't just some benevolent, Benevolent champion of the black man. Yeah, that's that's a good point, man, because a lot of times stories like this end up being about the guy who took the right. chance and paved the way for the black player. To, but he did. He did. Like, but he was the, an idealist. The emphasis, it's, it's just too easy sometimes for the emphasis right. to go on to that. Where well, it's like, well, the black player, like, yeah. became, he was one of the greatest baseball players of all time. Exactly. Let's, let's put it this way. If Branch Rickey hadn't wanted to sell tickets by fielding a good team, mm-hmm. he would have never signed Jackie Robinson. He was a businessman. It's a good, good The point. Dodgers sucked at the time. Did they? And, um, but he was an idealist. I mean, he was very much like, no, like this is wrong and they should be allowed to play. Yeah. So, okay. So he was a complex human being like all exactly. other human beings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He can't just be shoehorned into an easy caricature. No. That's great. So Branch Rickey, complicated human being, he selected Jackie Robinson, and it was a great selection. Yeah, Jackie Robinson played one year in the minors, which was ridiculous. Um, they should have just, like, he spent his entire life playing in the minors. Uh, they should have just promoted him right away. Mm-hmm. But I think they just wanted to ease that transition. He won the batting title in the minors, his only year there, and then uh, won Rookie of the Year in his very first year with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Yeah. And, uh, that was April 15th, 1947 was when, uh, he made his debut, which was very, very historic day. Yeah. An amazing day that ba- Major League Baseball has really, like, honored Jackie Robinson to the fullest now. Yeah. It's, and they should. Great. Jackie Robinson definitely threw open the floodgates within four months of, uh, Jackie Robinson being signed. Or no, I guess actually being called up to the majors. Yeah. Two other guys um, were signed, both in July. And I think that year there were a number of other um, black players suddenly playing for uh, white Major League Baseball, which is suddenly not you now just Major League Baseball, not white Major League Baseball. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Larry Doby, Cleveland Indians. Uh, Willard Brown, the St. Louis Browns. Henry Hank Thompson, the St. Louis Browns. Dan Bankhead. Leroy Satchel Page made it finally, uh, and of course Roy Campanella, uh, among others. These were the first uh, African Americans in Major League Baseball, and um, by 1952, just a few years later, there were 150 black players, and by 1954, all but four Major League teams had black players. Yep. There, there were a few holdouts. Yeah, the uh, 
Boston Red Sox notably were the last. They waited till 1959, 13 years after Jackie Robinson's debut season. Yeah. In the, in, uh, the minors. So with the signing of Jackie Robinson and all the players to follow, like you hinted at earlier, mm-hmm. um, and like this article, uh, plainly says it was, it was a very bittersweet end. Um, in one way it was great. The color barrier was smashed. The league was being integrated and they were getting their due. Um, although it was a struggle, but in another way it was also sad that this league that had so much gumption and mm-hmm. such a, a great, like, we'll do it ourselves then, attitude, right. uh, and empower these men to play and these people to own these teams and start their own leagues. So it was definitely like a, a weird time in history. Yeah, it is. Like, it, I think nowadays there's much more of a, a reverence and a bit of mourning for the disappearance of that league. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in another way, like I said, it was smashing the color barrier was way more. Sure. Uh, Way more better. <laughs> I just went into Hulk speak. So, the, yeah, it would have been a much more satisfying end to the whole thing if the Negro Leagues had poached the best players in the um, white major league baseball. Oh, actually, you know what the best possible thing could have been was if the white major leagues absorbed those teams and owners and ownership oh, as yeah. part of one big league. Nice. But they were like, no, we're just going to take your players. Yeah. Give them to us. Yeah. So, um, that is Negro League Baseball, the history of it. Yep, officially disbanded in uh, 1948, and uh, this article says into the 1950s, there were still a few teams playing here and there, and in the early 1960s even, there was like one final team, or I guess one final pair of teams, I guess they had to play somebody. Mm -hmm. Still playing. (laughs) Right, or they could scrimmage themselves. Yeah, it says the Negro American League was the last to throw in the towel in the early 60s. Yeah. So, yeah, more than one team. And this article makes a point today, or at least in 2012, um, Major League Baseball was 40% non-white, which I was like, what? I would have guessed it was the opposite of that. That it was I would not have guessed non-white. 60% of Major League Baseball players are white. Yeah, and you know what? There's a big push... I think like the one of the least represented demographics now in pro baseball are African Americans. Really? Yeah, partially because of the rise of Latino players, mm-hmm. um, and then partially because they there's not a big a push to play baseball these days mm-hmm. as kids in America, mm-hmm. and so there there there's a lot of concerted efforts to try and get baseball going again in black communities, um, which is awesome. Sure, you know, yeah. I know I was pushed. My dad was like, get out there and get hit in the head with the ball. See, I wasn't allowed. I had to play church softball. <laughs> so lame. <laughs> uh, so then the color barrier is broken. And now the last vestige of any sort of color issue is the Native American slurs that are rampant in in all sports as far as teams go. Yeah. Uh, if you want to know more about the Negro Leagues, you can type those words in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also go check out this amazing uh, article uh, called Negro Leagues, A Kaleidoscopic Review. It's on MLB.com by Stephen Goldman. Yeah, he's a great author. And check out NegroLeagueBaseball.com. They have like all sorts of great profiles on the players and all that stuff. Oh, we never said the nicknames. Oh, yeah. Should we rattle off a few of those? Sure. All right, boy, these are some good nicknames. 
How about Jelly Gardner or Spoonie Palm? Turkey Stearns. Turkey Stearns. He's a Hall of Famer. Copper Knee Thompson or Steel Arm Davis? I think you mentioned um, Cool Papa Bell. Yeah, Cool Papa Bell. <laughs> that is the greatest name ever. Uh, Possum Poles, Ace Adams, King Tut. Smokey Joe Williams. Bullet Joe Rogan. Not yeah, Joe, Joe Rogan. Rogan. <laughs> Did you know that? Rats Henderson. Boy, Turkey Stearns. That might be the best. That might be my new hotel pseudonym. Cool Papa Joe. Yeah, but no one would buy that at a hotel registry. Oh, yeah. If you go up and Turkey say... Turkey Stearns, they definitely go for <laughs> Those are great nicknames. All right. Oh, yeah. Okay, so uh, now, said Turkey, now that right. we said Turkey Stearns, it's time for <laughs> listener mail. Uh, this one I'm going to call short and sweet. Um, what do you call it when you uh, remember something with a pneumatic device? Uh, no. Mnemonic. Mnemonic. Pneumatic <laughs> is when you remember it while you're pumping air up and down. Was it nomadic? You remember it while you're wandering around? <laughs> Mnemonic, of course. Nice. I feel like a dummy. Uh, howdy, Josh and Chuck. A friend recommended uh, your show to me recently, and I love it. Love uh, it. You satisfy all my nerdy entertainment requirements while I'm at work. Um, you seem to have a bit of trouble recalling the order of uh, taxonomic, taxonomic there you go. categories. Boy, I'm going to have trouble in this next Categories. show. <laughs> uh, during Wooly Mammoths, uh, not Wooly Mammoths, as our typo originally said. Yeah, it was my fault. That's all right. You just forgot to know. Wally. Uh, here's an easy memory trick we learned in high school biology. Kings play chess on fine green silk. Mm-hmm. Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. I love that stuff because I will never forget it now. That's not a mnemonic device, is it? It's pneumatic. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea uh, why this is still in my head over ten years later. Well, that's exactly why. Sure. Uh, Katie. So, hope that helps. And that is Katie from West Texas. Thanks a lot, Katie from West Texas. We appreciate that. Um, Kings play chess on green silk. Fine green silk. I'll never remember the fine part. Yeah. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet to us at uh, SYSK Podcast. You can also hang out with me at Josh underscore um underscore Clark on Twitter. Uh, you can hang out with us on Facebook.com slash WSNO and check out Chuck at Charles W. Bryant. Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Appropriate. On Facebook as well. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.